What's happening, weirdos? This is a longtime dream guest of both mine and Valerie's. Valerie is co-hosting this episode, I'm so happy to say. She's always with us on Friday, but Val loves Anne Lamott so much uh, that she had to sit in. And it turned out to be sort of a double date because this is Anne Lamont and her partner, Neil. We got Neil promoting his, it's Neil Allen promoting his book, Shapes of Truth, which is currently blowing both my and Val's mind. It's incredible. We talk quite a bit about that in this. Uh, Anne Lamont, Annie, her books have shaped our lives, changed our lives, help thanks, wow, bird by bird. Uh, incredible. If you don't know Anne Lamont, I, I don't know. I don't know what you're doing. <laughs> I don't know what you're doing. We we met her at the Ramdas retreats where she was giving wonderful talks, and both Annie and Neil did not disappoint in this wonderful chat. So check out Shapes of Truth. Specifically, we're promoting that one because it drops today. I think after you hear our conversation about it, you're going to want to check it out. And I will tell you that it does not disappoint. It is incredible. Uh, This podcast is always supported by The Pete's Picks. So if you like this always free show, we uh, really appreciate it if you try one of The Pete's Picks. I'm so happy to introduce a new Pete's Pick this week, which is Ned. Ned and Company. Ned is a wellness brand rooted in the simple belief that we can all feel better and live better through simple means and a deeper connection to the natural world. Specifically, they are a purveyor of great incredibly high quality CBD. As you know, I love CBD. I thrive on it. I call it my happy juice and Ned reached out. I was so excited to try theirs and I'm blown away. They sent me a bunch. It's just the extract, just the compound CBD mixed with a little bit of MCT oil. The taste is super clean. And as you know, I call it my happy juice. It just puts a glow inside of me. It doesn't get you stoned. It doesn't get you high. You can work on it. You can focus on it. You can uh, stay in your life on it. I don't, I'm not a big fan of marijuana. I like what CBD does for me. It helps me relax in a natural and subtle way. It's almost subperceptual, especially if you take a little bit, but the feeling is wonderful. It's a great way to unwind and relax at the end of the day or to ease and settle into whatever your work you're sitting down to do. There's just less resistance, I find. I'm speaking about me when I take Ned CBD. Uh, It's a wonderful, wonderful company. They are very transparent. They share their third-party lab reports. Uh, they t- tell you where they farm their hemp, their hemp, <laughs> their hemp. They share their cold extraction process. They even uh, are very open about where the farm is. It's grown in Colorado, which I think is huge. Not only do they have incredible CBD products, they also have a new incredible magnesium super blend called Mellow. Magnesium is one of those things that most people are deficient in. And when I drank it, I got the naked flavor, so pretty much unflavored. Both Val and I had a cup. We were both feeling a little bit stressed. And whatever is in magnesium, whatever is in mellow, balanced our bodies. We felt more centered, more grounded, and just, I think I was deficient. I think I must have been. It filled me with what my body was looking for. It turns out magnesium, mellow, supports over 300 functions in the body. I love what it does with focus, productivity, and specifically relaxation. Uh, I took it for the first time last week, and for the first time in what I can remember, I fell asleep that night in under five minutes. I couldn't believe it. 
I it was actually we were putting Leela down. We had her in the bed. I just laid down next to her and I just conked out. It was like eight o'clock. Val woke me up. I was very tired and we, we had to have our night, but that's how much it relaxed me. So we could all use a little bit of relaxation. We could all use a little bit of stress relief. We could all use a little bit of a mood elevator. CBD has always been a secret weapon of mine. Ned and company is making an incredibly high quality CBD that you can really know so much about the process. And Mellow is helping get that magnesium super blend into me that I didn't even know I needed, but over, as I said, 300 functions in the body are supported and enhanced by taking it. So I'm, I'm in. I'm a full believer. I'm so happy to be partnering with Ned & Co. So if you want to show your support of this podcast and give this stuff a try, because really the best way to know if it's good for you is to give it a try, go to helloned.com slash weird, or just enter weird at checkout at helloned.com, and you'll get 15% off your first one-time purchase and 20% off your first subscription order. So show your support. And try something that is definitely making my life better. Go to helloned.com slash weird or enter weird at checkout for 15% off on a one-time purchase and 20% off if you make a subscription order. Thank you so much, Ned. (laughs) Ned and co, I guess I should say. So glad to have you as a new Pete's Pick. Our other Pete's Pick, uh, we've had for a while. It's another company that's absolutely changed my life for the better, is Living Libations. You guys know from listening to the show, I'm very mindful about what I put in my body, but I realized not that long ago that I wasn't being very careful about what I was putting on my body. And of course, what you put on your body gets in your body. It goes through the skin and into your system. So why was I buying shaving cream and face washes that were filled with toxic chemicals? Well, for the same reason a lot of us are. They have fancy names. Uh, They're expensive. Uh, They're sold in mall kiosks. Uh, It's easy. Whatever it might be. Maybe they're French sounding. I don't know. But they're filled with stuff that was never intended for humans. Chemicals linked to disease and just unpleasantness all around. So I realized I want to eat food where I recognize the ingredients and then I didn't know, but you can. You can have your skincare be the same with living libations. I always share this, but these are the the three main products. I use a lot of their products. I use their baby products and their dental products and their skin products and their hair stuff. I love it. But the main three that I would start with, the ginger exfoliating scrub, which is the most badass effective exfoliant I've ever found. Just because it's natural doesn't mean it's not powerful. This I would put this against anything you'd find on a shelf in a, in a drugstore. The ginger exfoliating scrub has oils and extracts that I recognize as real and natural, and it works. I use it before I shave. That's a pro tip, baked right into the Pete's Pick. Exfoliate, guys, your face before you shave. Makes a huge difference. And when I shave, I use their Zen Shave which is a balm, uh, a shaving cream, basically, that is so clean and natural and moisturizing, you can actually use a dab of it as your aftershave. It'll just absorb into your skin because it's not some anonymous neon blue goo shot from a pressurized can. And at night, both Val and I use their best skin ever moisturizer. It smells great, it feels great, and gets your skin looking radiant, and I use that before bed. But I promise you, Living Libations is probably the easiest uh, way to support the show, you can get something small, you can definitely uh, get tons and tons of stuff, but if you just want to show your support, give us a nod, help our advertisers know that these work, and uh, that that's a help to us. 
Living Libations definitely has tons of little things that you can get for your uh, face, for your body, for your eyes, for your teeth. And as I mentioned, they have wonderful baby products. We use the the sunblock for for baby Leela, which I think is incredible because I was tired of spraying her with some anonymous chemical from a corporation that doesn't give a, give a shit. So we started using the natural sunblock, and it works fantastic. Living Libations has a premium, natural, and wonderful product to replace the random chemical nightmare. They sell at 7-Eleven, and you can show your support of the show. So go to livinglibations.com, use promo code WEIRD for 20% off. That's livinglibations.com, promo code WEIRD at checkout for 20% off and show your support of this podcast. All right, guys, definitely check out Neil Allen's book, Shapes of Truth. Check it out. And anything, literally anything by Annie Lamont, specifically Annie's new book, Dusk, Night, Dawn, which is incredible. So give it a whirl. Try a Pete's pick. Thanks for listening. Oh, and I'm super excited because so many people are vexed. We're starting to do the podcasts in person. This one was over Zoom. We did it a while ago. But pretty soon, guys, it's going to be back in person. People talking over each other. Knees touching. Pretty exciting stuff. I'm, I'm so excited that the world is opening back up and the implications that will have for this podcast. So thank you to everybody who, uh, who stuck with us through the Zoom times. And I'm happy to say we're, we're moving back into the regular recording schedule, which is a thrill. In the meantime, enjoy Annie Lamott and Neil. Get into it. Cute faces. Oh, <laughs> oh, look at your look at your books being friends behind you. It's adorable. I love that. I want Val to write a book so we can do that. All right, I'll do it just for that. <laughs> she will. She will. How are you guys? It's lovely to see you. Good. How are you? What's the latest? The latest. What's we're the just, we were just we're complaining about how our vaccines made us feel wonky. I don't know yeah. if you guys are vaxxed and relaxed. A lot long ago. I just long love ago. the fact that it's such a major piece of gossip is having, you know, when I had babies, I had like little kids. Sometimes there was something called a baby virus that would come through. And it, like a baby has a virus that it passes to you and it's gone in like 12 hours. It just kind of shoots in and out. And mm. everybody's talking about, well, how did you react to the virus? And, and, and yeah. it's really a baby virus. It is a baby, baby virus. Baby virus. Yeah. I love that we are all talking about like who got it. Did you get it? Do you, did, you know, like my mom got it. My my brother got it. And a year ago we were saying the same thing, but it was for COVID and not yeah, the that's vaccine. Right. That's right. And I wonder uh, for both of you, actually, I, I don't mean to ask a spiritually leading question, but I noticed that there's a real loss of identity as someone who's avoiding COVID and then you get the vaccine and you, it sort of changes. So there was like a clinging. I felt it. I'm I'm not talking about other people. I'm saying, wait, for the past, however many months, I've been a guy who's careful about COVID. Now I have this vaccine and I'm like, who am I now? I don't know who I am. And people like that. That's interesting. There's a self-righteous role as a, as a COVID careful person yes Mm -hmm. and there is a real uh gratification to be like i'm not like those reckless people and you see there are people that get the vaccine but they're like but i'm still not doing anything and and you can kind of 
hear the the crackling delight of the ego being like, don't worry, I st- I'm still this, I'm still this. We really love that, othering the, the people that never cared about it and really being the people that do care about it. But you guys got it and you feel okay. Yeah, I was. I went to bed for six hours. Are we recording, by the way? I don't want to say anything interesting if we're not recording. <laughs> Annie, you are me, and I love. I don't mean just in a cosmic sense. I mean you're me, and I. I really hate chit chat before the goods. This is the goods. We're recording. We start right away. You can go ahead and be interesting. Well, for my second shot. I had all this stuff to do, all this very busy, important stuff to do, like to remember to buy graph paper. So I got in the car um, when I woke up later later that morning, and I drove somewhere, and I almost hit a truck. In fact, I almost caused a real car accident. And I said to myself, Annie, I think you should go home. And so I went (laughs) back home, and I got in bed. I slept for six hours with the kitty. And with everybody, I've said, don't get in a car the next day. You'd feel okay, but you're not. You're you're a little other. Yeah. Yeah. I was talking to our contractor who they're painting now, and he always makes me feel faint. But I was talking to him, and I I started sweating, and I really needed to sit down. And and that always happens when someone starts explaining they found this rot over here. But I was like, this is even worse (laughs) than usual. I heard, Annie, you talking about being, I, I don't know if you identify as an extra sensitive or extremely sensitive. Hypersensitive person. Extremely uh, highly, sensitive. Yeah. Highly? Yeah. yeah. Um, oh, highly sensitive. So yeah. much of my life for the past couple of years, I thought maybe I was a little bit on the spectrum. And then one of our listeners was like, no, I think you're a highly sensitive person because those symptoms can often be the same. Mm-hmm. Um and you beautifully talk about being sensitive. And I didn't know if you had any experience in that category, highly sensitive person. Well, I write in um, Dust Night Dawn about the book my parents read in the 50s called The Highly Sensitive Child because it was apparently mm. just such a nightmare to have a child like me. Because you know what? I had, <laughs> I had an open heart. I noticed stuff. We took to National Geographic. I saw what the kids in India were trying to survive. I saw the babies had flies on their heads and I cried. And we went to the pound to pick out our dogs and cats. And I cried because I knew most of them didn't find homes. And so there was a book to address children like myself. And, um, and I'm a highly sensitive child of I'll be 67 in, in next week. And, um, I just came this way, but the battle cry of my parents and teachers was, oh, you've got to get a thicker skin, which means if you could just be a completely different person, it would be a lot more pleasant to to have you in the house. So um, I had a lot of shame around that. So that was the blessing was doing the deep dive into healing some of that shame as I got older. But I'm still, you can ask Neil, I'm just still that way. Um, And it's the reason I've become a decent writer is because I'm very sensitive. Fortunately, I'm insensitive, so it doesn't bother me that she's highly sensitive. I don't have to be empathic. <laughs> it's right there on the page. I, I, I That came to mind when you first got married. Um, it was in uh, – I forget where we heard it, but you were talking about how everybody was asking you how's married life and yeah. that you learned to say – It's great. It's in the new book. It's in Dust Night Down. And you said, it's great. And you said something along the lines of like, 
giving them the answer that will make them feel comfortable. Like you're, you're sort of like, what do you need to hear that we might move on? And I just really relate to that, like learning how to play a character that's more comfortable for people. Um, um, <laughs> did a giant cat just walk in? <laughs> a, a grandchild just I walked saw you in. both get <laughs> We're having a power outing. Uh-huh. So, um, and I don't, there's also a diatribe against PG&E in Dust Night Dawn about a five-day blackout up here. But we're having a blackout. And I've been looking forward to this with you two for a month and the power's out. So we have a generator, but we also have the only electricity on the property. So people are coming in to either get warm or to use our Wi-Fi. So a grandchild, some <laughs> random grandchild just walked past to get to the Wi-Fi. <laughs> See, I'm extra sensitive too. I can't I can't ignore two people looking at something that I can't see. <laughs> Um, but I, I was I was leading you into the idea. Yeah, go ahead. No, you go ahead. I, I was just saying, do you, do you ever, both of you, feel like you're learning how to play a character? I really feel like my parents taught me how to play a character. Oh, yeah. And often when I go home, that's what's so unpleasant about it, is they want me to read from the old script. <laughs> you know, it's like, you want me to say these things, but I figured out my truth, and I figured out my boundaries, and I figured out who I really am, but you want me to be this thing. But I can still less and less. But speak to that. I mean, it's interesting. This This whole book is about that. (laughs) (laughs) Neil's book. You mean this book? book, (laughs) Neil's book, Shapes of Truth, is about the lifelong performance art that we were encouraged to um, improve and improve and improve. So I will give uh, the mic over to Neil because this is his strong suit. Well, it's also... It's our beloved Ramdas would talk a lot about that too. So we all have this in common. We're all interested. And it's also um, Duncan Trussell saying, "When you first meet me, you meet my bodyguard." I don't think we're allowed to talk about Duncan Trussell. They're they're they're, oh, they're rivals. rivals. And enemies. Yeah. Oh right. No. <laughs> oh, they're all rivals. <laughs> yeah, right. That's so funny. Edit that <laughs> out. Katie. One. There's there's room for one spiritual comment. Yeah, that's, that's right. so funny. I yes. mean, I, I, when I read your beautiful chapter about Duncan and Dust Night Dawn, I felt a little jealous that he got to you before we did. Yeah. <laughs> well, let Neil talk to you about yeah. the superego, which I call in my book, uh, I say, um, dread was my governess growing up, but then Neil's work involves, um, the superego, and I'll let you tell, it's the same thing. I just, I'll just be very brief. I simplify things to uh, people have three defenses. And it's weird. We think we have an assortment of defenses and all sorts of strategies for making our way in the world and being seen the way we want to be seen. But we really have three defenses. We have the defense, uh, or we really have three fears. Each of them has a defense. The three fears are... um, I might not be seen, Mm. I might not be in control, Mm. and I might not be right. Wow. So if you're you're scared of you're not being seen, you tend to withdraw, right? You know, it's a form of taking the basketball with you. You know, I'm not going to play, right? And I think that's what you're talking about is the the fear. All of us have have this gnawing fear starting at about five years old that the thing that we really are isn't what our parents are asking us to do or be right. And so we have to kind of keep secret a little piece of ourselves. Can I just inter- yeah. interject one word? 
heartbreaking. That's just heartbreaking. Mm-hmm. We can say it so plainly and so beautifully, but I'm like, that is so much pain for me and I think for a lot of us. You know what the weirdest part of it is? Is And I was probably uh, in my late 50s before I noticed this, that all of us are covering up the exact same person we really are, which is this completely goofy, <laughs> curious kid. It's goofiness that we're covering up. We, we yeah. caught in the... This is this the book that I wrote is about a, a kind of a systematic cosmology of aspects of God, and this aspect of God mm-hmm. is actually known to people who studied this stuff. Uh, its its real name is personal love, but it's known as pink fluffy love, and it's just embarrassing that that's who I am, right? That the the, the personal love that I am it's so embarrassing that I'm a I'm a little girl in a pink frock, you know, playing with an easy bake oven, or I'm a little boy rolling down a hill. That's who I am at heart. And my parents told me I couldn't really be that out in public. Yeah. Or, or worse, you were that and something terrible happened and you like learned that school happened. The blacktop happened. Uh, (laughs) The culture and the teachers rose up to say that that was a really um, uh, bad way to be, partly because it wasn't getting you ahead scholastically to be a goofy little kid, and partly because you had to start figuring out the system of of the bad people versus you, the good people. And so judgment arises. Neil, in his book, talks about the superego, and when he works with clients, the superego is a parasite. It's the same person as Dredd, who was my governess. It kept us alive. It kept us from running out into the street. It kept us from swimming out past our ability to stay afloat. It was very effective till we were seven. But then all of a sudden, we didn't need it anymore. We became very good with traffic and pool swimming. But it, it, we were driven by it. It, told, it wanted to keep us small and in control. I mean, Neil's much better on this, but I am more succinct. So what, <laughs> so what he does is he bring, helps people bring their superego forward so he can address it. He starts to talk to us. Who's hired you to keep me small and afraid and in control? Well, it turns out we hired the superego. Well, how do we get some relief so that we can be the little goofy kid, the child with, with curiosity and wonder and this endless sense of generosity towards others that we grow out of because they told us to, the parents and the teachers. The parents made us lunches. They didn't want us to share. They wanted us to eat them, right? But so Neil in his book and in his work has people um, very gently suggests that the uh, superego might want to go wait in the library where there's a really good reading lamp and great <laughs> books, and he or she will sit there. And if we need an ethical consult- consultant for the community, we will go and get him or her. And he, they're so excited that now they have this very prestigious job, and they get to just kind of read all day and wait for us to need them and mm. call upon them, and that otherwise we're going to get back to work. We're going to get back to writing. We're going to get to be being fully human and alive and playful and in radical silliness. And yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, every time we remember that we get to start our new 24 hours over again, we say mm-hmm. to the superhero, oh, thank you. No, I'm good for now. You go read and we'll come get you. 
Oh, I love that so much, Neil. That's so needed. And listeners of this podcast will know that that's, I mean, I I feel like I've been looking specifically for um, something to reconcile the work that I do in therapy, which is almost exclusively like somatic um, trauma healing, which a lot like in the forward, Annie, that you wrote, it sounds like what you took her through on your first date was a lot of what I do in therapy. And um, so like on one hand, I've been holding everything I've been learning about embodied healing and like internal family systems or parts work, um, which sounds very similar to this too. And I've been loving it. And then I also uh, have my spiritual practice, which is largely from the Buddhist tradition. And um, with a few exceptions, it's it's pretty rare to have the two merge. Um, to have and I and I would, I've I've gotten very frustrated that um, that the practice and the spiritual world doesn't include the body as much as I would like and in, in its own wisdom. Yeah, it's a, it, it is the a, imagination? It's a particular kind of relic of our being a, a Christian-oriented um, culture that, uh, you know, all of the spiritual traditions kind of share dharma and um, uh, sangha and um, what else? Uh, self-inquiry and... Service. But, and, and service and... All of the other ones besides Christianity include some kind of body work. And mm-hmm. It's just it's just kind of a weird omission wow. in modern Christianity. Did you know this, Neil? I just can't help with my Christian fun facts that when Paul talks about the flesh, um, a lot of more modern interpreters would say, like Richard Rohr would say, he's talking about ego, but we took it as flesh. So there was this real, yeah. oh, it's my flesh that's wrong. It's... This is not my home. I'm just passing through. This is an embarrassing meat puppet, and and I touched my peepee, and I'm going to hell. And <laughs> and then when you when someone just comes in and clicks it one degree to the right and says he's talking about ego, he's talking about the false self. You go, oh, okay, maybe Paul's not so bad. You know what I mean? Like it opens it all back up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. interesting. I, I love what you just said because and what you were saying. One of the ways into the body is imagination. I'd love, or visualization. Imagination sounds dismissive, but I put a a high premium on imagination. To visualize a part of yourself as another being. We do this with our child self. When we go someplace, the child self doesn't feel safe. Val taught this to me. You send your child self to the beach with a friend and you say, you go there, I'll be here. You're not needed to come here. And that's really powerful. I've had some experiences with hypnosis where they say, let's give your pain an image. Let's give your pain a name. You talk about that because that is what you walked Danny through in the opening of the book. And it's what you were just talking about here with your superego, the power of an image. The, we're, we're symbolic people. Mm-hmm. We're symbolic people. I mean, I, 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 um, um, I've been looking at that a lot lately and, Everything in my life can be interpreted as a metaphor, right? Everything. And that's just weird, right? Because <laughs> all a metaphor does is take something that's, that's unlike the thing that you're investigating and matching it to it, right? Um, and, uh, but in doing that, it creates a little fairy tale story, right? It creates what we call a meaning, 
which simply means a beginning, a middle, and an end. And maybe I just do that all day long. If I notice I'm doing it, I don't get heavy like metaphorical. It's not like I become Bob Dylan and Emily Dickinson or something where I'm very serious and, and making poetic thoughts. Instead, what I become is playful because I don't have to take it so seriously if I know that it's just a game I'm playing with myself. None of it is really it. Yeah. We, we were just talking about it. It's like, uh, forgive me, in Toy Story, there's two levels of awakening of the toys. One is they realize they're toys. Did you, did you see Toy Story? You both have children. In Toy Story, Buzz doesn't know he's a toy, right? And so he comes out and he thinks he's a spaceman and he thinks he can't breathe the air and he thinks he crash land. And then they explain to him he's a toy. That's the first awakening. The second awakening is you're a toy that belongs to Andy, which is, I know there's a parenting metaphor there, but there's also a God metaphor. You belong. You are owned and beloved and you are animated by something that picks you up and play through stories and you surrender to it. But the first awakening without the second one is paranoia. So similar here, you're saying like, if we say everything is a metaphor, we can get paranoid. Uh, Ramdas says, not a leaf turns, but by the will of God, that's paranoia. If you, if you start like, I'm moving my hand and that's the will of God, you start freaking out. But if you have the second one where you go, wait, it's just play. I belong to something. I'm, I'm not a visitor here. Then you can be the fluffy pink child that's just playing with metaphor. Does is, is that sound right? Yeah, 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 yeah. You're I offended Annie. I, walked in. <laughs> I think it's fascinating. Annie just went, some people walked into the house, and so Annie just stepped <laughs> no away from the okay. to, uh, to be the um, crossing guard. Um, but I We think just hear that, her uh, watching Toy Story. <laughs> I, I think it's interesting, too, that, you, that the, the metaphor becomes a merging of parent and God. Right. And that the, the, uh, we do grow up with the idea of omniscience and superiority and uh, being, belonging to our parents. And that's very hard to let go of. It might be the last thing that you have to let go of. The, the part where Buddha says, your mother isn't your mother, your father isn't your father. And Christ says something similar. Yeah, honor your parents, but look at me instead. Right. right. Pay more attention. Mm-hmm. Yes, but, I think but that's very hard for people to make that leap. Yeah, well, that's like Byron Katie saying, "You do? Do you even have a father?" Yeah, yeah. but so, for Pete's kind of leap. <laughs> well, I, yes, but there—that's what I mean. If I don't feel like a, a dignified citizen of reality by virtue of being in reality, that's my ticket. I'm in reality, therefore I am accepted by reality. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Then a pretty far out spiritual teacher can say, you don't have a father. Like you have a story of a father, but it only exists because you build a metaphor. You go, the thing that is over there, these shapes and these lights that sounds like this, I'll call that, I won't say it's like dad, I'll say it is dad. That's a metaphor. Everything is a metaphor and your feelings are a metaphor. So if I'm hearing you correctly... This weird reality building mechanism that we have can be, I don't want to say exploited, but to be sexier, I'll say exploited to our advantage. So yeah. your feelings are a metaphor. Let's metaphorize them and then, and then see if we can loosen them or give them space. Does that sound well, right? And then the, the trippy part is I become a metaphor, right? So mm-hmm. I disappear into the metaphoric life. And at first that feels like a loss, but if I play with it long enough, 
it's the gain of being able to look at anything fearlessly. Um, because if I have nothing to protect, I can be, I can be as objective and fearless as I want with whatever is projected my way. Hmm. And that can all of a sudden fill up with feelings of joy and strength and power and all sorts of things that are, while they are uh, real in a way, even they are metaphoric and light and, Mm -hmm. and played with. Um, It uh, helps you lighten up. I mean, I'm, I'm thinking, Annie, I know you love here now and I know you love Jesus (laughs) and the first page of be here. Now I'm talking about the illustrated part has the, my favorite verse, which I quote every day, lest you be, be converted and be, and become as little children. It's also in the Gospel of Thomas where Jesus says, an old man will look at a seven-day-old baby and see life, and he will live. I'm like, oh, God, it's the, it's the fluffy pink. So <laughs> do you get any juice out of this? Does this bring you back into your child? Can, can we play with the ocean and the, and the clouds a little bit more when we see ourselves as a story? You know, Pete, I'm a dropout. So I don't have interesting esoteric or theo- or theological or psychiatric insight into much of anything. But um, <laughs> I know, you know, I know that when we when we we came here when we were little children, uh, even though children can be little beasts on the blacktop or the playground, we came here with just such generosity of spirit and such curiosity. That was what defined us was sort of wonder and and uh, uh, the the literal bliss. I don't mean that metaphorically. I mean the literal bliss of sharing, and it really gets cultured out of you. And you you get in trouble when it turns out you gave half of your sandwich away in kindergarten because your parents want you to eat it and you're too thin or whatever, and uh, and they become bitter upon hearing that you <laughs> shared your food, which is the main Jesus thing: is share your food. Right. And you, you go to India and people, somebody in the gutter with, with a couple of other people has, there's a banana and they split it three ways. Right. But in America, you put it all away in a drawer because it's not an effective way. Uh, it's not effective scholastically to hope that everybody does the same and everybody does. Okay. Mm. So um, that's why I love the special Olympics so much. I know I'm getting off the question, but at the Special Olympics, like for me, because I'm competitive and, you know, kind of vile and in, in most important ways, if I'm in a foot race and somebody spaces out and sits in the dirt or starts to take off their shoe, I just am ecstatic because it means I'm going to win and I'm going to win by a lot more. Right. But at the Special Olympics, they go back for each other. Somebody sits down in the dirt and the other runners go back and they all and they get the, the person in the dirt back up on his feet. And his shoe tied, and they dust him off, and everybody starts running again. So, mm-hmm. um, to me, that's really childhood at its most beautiful, and that that's what Jesus was talking about. Mm-hmm. That um, children need to be obedient too, you know. And so you're either obedient to the superego that Neil talks about, whose intention is to keep you small and alive and um, controllable, or you become obedient to this other voice, the great, the great whatever, let's call it, or the great universal spirit or the love energy that I know the four of us believe surrounds us and indwells us. And um, so it's like you get to keep picking who you're going to listen to. Mm. So um, with my Sunday school kids, 
um, of all ages, I try to help them get playful again. And one of the ways I do that is I give them a lot of art. You know, I give them a lot of crayons. I give them, you know, the secret of a good Sunday school is not only juice boxes, but it's glue sticks. Glue <laughs> sticks and juice boxes and a teacher who just loves Jesus and as a kind of Casper the Friendly Ghost sort of presence in her life and you're rolling. So um, that's the way that I help kids play more and I help them make more messes. And more mistakes. And that's they're not getting that from anybody else in the real world. I'll tell you that. They're not getting that at school. Mm-hmm. You know, may, fail, fail. You know, or like Beckett said, try something, fail, try again, fail better. Try again, fail better. Keep failing better, you know. And so with my kids, if you could see our Sunday school, it's a room. It's about a 10 by 10. It's just pandemonium and chaos. Because as an artist... And my office is a little bit the same, but it's all scribbly, scribbly notes on paper and napkins and index cards and things stuck to the wall. And um, that to me says that's a fertile field, whereas Mm -hmm. the superego that Neil talks about or the governess want a very, very nice organized desk, Mm -hmm. everything in its place and everything sharpened. And um, and I don't think that that leads you to spiritual uh, union or to a joyous life. Val's laughing because we're in my office and it is a mess. It is the worst. It's what I, I refer to it as the garbage room because there, very recently when I pointed out that there isn't actually a trash can in here, uh, the whole room was a trash can. And now there is a trash can, but still the trash is all over. This is, you know, it's a, a metaphor for my brain. And if somebody, Val doesn't, but if somebody moved this post-it and note or whatever i don't know it i don't feel myself spending energy remembering that there's a post-it note with something very important on it but somewhere in my body i know and then when i need it i want to know that it's there i'm the same way with cooking i'm like we use the garlic powder every day just leave the garlic powder right here i don't say this to val but that (laughs) is how i would run the house i would we use garlic powder in everything just leave it right here why does it have to be in a drawer just leave it because then i forget the garlic powder and now i'm eating a garlicless pasta and it stinks i want the garlic give me the garlic what are you going to say, my love? I was just going to say that is his method is anything that you use semi-regularly, just leave it out. Or I'll forget. There's actually a sadness to it. I'll forget. And then I'm eating a plain well, that pasta me dish. understand. I don't want you to go garlicless. Thank I'll, you. I'll, we want garlic. I'll allow now, it. Now, now, what does your office look like? I actually am in <laughs> – this is very challenging to me, Annie, because I, I think that you are right. And because I've noticed that, especially with – in the beginning days of the pandemic, um, I got obsessed with keeping my house clean. And we have a two and a half year old. So as you know, that's just impossible. That's that's sadism to try and, and um, do that. But I I noticed that when I'm in like a feeling out of control internal space, that's how I cope is I try to just make my external space as controlled as possible. And um so I'm in I'm in the process of making an upstairs room my office and I really considered putting locks on the doors so that my daughter couldn't get in 
<laughs> because I, I bought a nice rug that I couldn't, I know she'll spill on and I, and I got beautiful curtains and I've made, I have like feminine art and I'm, I'm like, this will be one room in the house that I can keep completely clean and nice and pretty. And, um, and I can see how that might be a, a create, a creativity killer. Not for you. I think that is also called the, um, in, in the recovery community, we call that the deliberate manufacture of misery. <laughs> me it's just a complete setup like I would set it up and then give her a bottle of grape juice to just get it over with because you know it's all hopeless the title of my hope my book on hope was doomed thoughts on hope but they made me change it because they didn't think that it had good marketing potential but um, also you could I, I think it's really okay to have one sacred space mm. and that's the Virginia Woolf room of one's own Mm-hmm. And your child, you can give her the grape juice and have her go to daddy's room. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You won't even notice here. Jeez, you won't even awesome. notice. It's a free for all. I'm um, back here peeing in bottles so I don't have to go inside. I mean, this yeah, is yeah. Well, this, the funny thing is that Neil and I are both very, very tidy. We clean up constantly. I, I, I clean. The kitchen is always, almost always clean. But we have a grandchild who has his friends. We have currently three dogs on the property. We have a cat. We, we, it's real life. It's life on life's terms. But in my office, you don't get to come in with any good ideas on how I ought to um, structure it. You know, it's, um, it's, it's how it's a safe space for me. And if your safe space is really, really neat with a nice carpet, which kind of blows my mind that you have a two and a half year old and a nice carpet made sense. But putting that aside, <laughs> it you doesn't. have a room of your own. And it's funny because no one mentioned when we were growing up that there was such a thing as, as, as your own sense of safety excuse me, safety and creativity. And you can't have creativity unless you're really safe. You go to your room, the room that you've created where you work, there's stuff on the wall. Certain images make you feel really happy. Like it might be Neem Coralie Baba. It might be a picture of your beloved. It might be, you know, your dad, whatever. And, um, but no one mentioned that there was said that, that you had as a, a child of God, the right to a room that was yours alone. Mm-hmm. And that I wouldn't go into Neil's room and say, you know what? I'm just wondering here if if you might consider doing something with the envelopes with which you're going to be mailing out Shapes of Truth because it's I wouldn't do that. I wouldn't go in and I wouldn't go in there and say, you know what? This is too neat to be a fertile field, you know, and he would never. And when we were living together at the old house, his office was Jack's. It was like the guest room where Jack's played and it was like a, a four by four area where, where he used a computer that was there and it was total chaos and pandemonium. And he made it into a sacred space. Then I built him kind of a, a, a bat cave in the garage and um, where a, about a, maybe it was a, that was a 10 by 10. It was a prison cell. It was a prison yeah, cell. Yeah. And, um, but he got to have it however he wanted it because it was his sacred space. It had a cement floor. It had a cement floor. Yeah. It was, I thought very cool. And, uh, and he kept she, him out. And she pushed me into it. Yeah. She said, why don't you go into your, your office? And I'd I, say, go into your office. And I'd but, say my cell. But he got a lot of work done there. A lot of very profound work done. And it was quiet the most important thing and people didn't go in and out and that's the Virginia Wolf room of one's own 
Yeah. Wow. Well, I will say, going back to the child self idea that I I have such a clear memory when I was, I think I must have been nine, um, having this brainstorm for how I wanted to redirect my, uh, uh, redecorate my bedroom and being in school and sneaking uh, like on a piece of paper, drawing it all out and, and feverishly getting so excited about it. And that's kind of the last time I remember really taking ownership of a room and how it looks. And so the act of just asking myself, what kind of carpet do I want, even if it means putting locks on the doors? <laughs> or um, what kinds of pictures do I want? Just me is, has felt like very, very loving. I just want to agree with that. I, we have friends that have two kids and, and one of them is older. And I wanted to buy her a lock. It's not my place. But I wanted to buy her a lock for her bedroom. So even though I'm messy, I understand everything you guys are talking about. Yeah. And I wanted to ask a question. It sort of speaks to spaces and honesty, something that I think you guys are both strong in. Annie, when you're saying, we've been trying to lean into our kinks, meaning we're trying to be like radically honest with what we actually like and who we actually are. Mm. Because everything else is, is bullshit and it's a waste of time. So when you say... If someone I'm racing falls and their shoe comes off, I go faster. Well, guess what? Me too. And guess what? I like being. I like feeling special. I would talk with Ramdas a, a lot about my specialness addiction. I, or, that's very harsh, but you know, loving being special because it's a waste to to put on a mask and be like, oh, I don't, I don't like being special. Fucking yes, you do, and you do that in your work. You 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 use it a lot as a as a joke, being like, I would never say that Neil stole most of my good lines, but but of course you are saying that. <laughs> can you talk? Can you both talk a little bit about like fierce honesty, especially when it's funny or helpful? Can I talk about when we were dating? Yeah. We did. I still. Um, I don't know that there's anything I'm more proud of in my entire life than what I'm about to tell, to tell you. <laughs> when we were first dating, um, we would end the day. We saw each other from the first time we saw each other. We have seen each other every single time, every single day since then, unless mm -hmm. one of us was traveling. Um, and so we, during the first two weeks of dating, we would end the day um, and usually occasionally at my place, but usually at Annie's place, um, watching, um, uh, uh, Scandinavian noir TV series, right? So detective series from Scandinavia and, um, uh, we would turn on, so we were binging, we would turn, turn, turn it on. We'd have, can, I, can I interrupt? Sorry, Neil, with one question. Why? <laughs> because I mean, a couple of reasons for me, People are nicer to each other in Scandinavian TV shows. Uh, the plot is the same, but in American TV shows, everybody's nasty and sarcastic and ironic all the time. Mm -hmm. And in, I mean, in Scandinavia, people are just sincere, right? Mm. Except for the serial killers. Except, yeah, the killers. Can well, they're sincere in their own way. <laughs> so I just enjoy it more, and so we still kind of binge on those. So we're we're binging on we we. So every night we're sitting on her couch usually. And we're just kind of nestled and being in first love and all of that kind of stuff. And it, all of a sudden, one of us would hit the remote and blurt out something they were ashamed of. 
Mm. And then start up the series again. And we'd just watch a little while. And then the, the other one would hit the remote and blurt out a similar thing they were ashamed of. Mm. And in two weeks, I think we moved through every single thing we were completely ashamed and protective of nobody knowing about. Mm. This is it. I have no idea other than being old and realizing that the other way doesn't work. I have no mm. idea why we did, what prompted us to do that. But we never talked about it while it was happening. We just, and we, we basically got out just about everything, maybe everything. I mean, we might have held on to a secret or two. I have no idea whether she no. held a secret or what, even, I don't even know if I held on to a secret, but most of, we got out the, enough of them that it was a tipping point that we no longer had to be scared of revealing or being seen in a particular way ever again. And then you were wow. available to be loved. Wow. I mean, what else, what else, like, that unconditional love, you have to give it to yourself. Give yourself the good stuff, and then you have to give someone the opportunity to love you that way, too. Otherwise, we're back to that puppet show. It's a waste of time to pretend to be somebody that they might like. Can I, to clarify, though, it sounds like you're watching Scandinavian Noir. Someone had to go first. Someone paused and just went, uh, I sit down to pee. I just like it more. And then you unpause. <laughs> And that is that is one for me, by the way. I love sitting to pee. Him too, by the way. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> you should get together. But um, yeah. no, it would be like you know, for for me certainly, it was all the stuff that I was just sick of carrying around and feeling bad about. That with all all the other men, not that there were any before Neil, but with all of the other other men. men. Yeah. <laughs> that was one of the secrets she kept. <laughs> that was one of the secrets. Yeah, I was very young. Um, but um, you know, you're just so, you're just the blessing of the, the the grace of being older is that you you become less willing to carry around all this stupid shit that has kept your plane flying so low for sixty years that you're barely grazing the treetops, and you just start throwing it out. Well, then at sixty two, I think. Neil and I met and I was 62. He's a year younger. Um, and so, and, and I just was like done. I thought, um, I don't, I don't have it in me to do the same pattern and structure as earlier relationships where you wait a certain amount of time and then you spring on them that you've done this or that, or that you did this to somebody or that you did something really disgraceful or that your default place is this or that, and you're getting better, but it's still, you know? And so it'd be funny. So we'd be watching and all of a sudden it'd be like, like, like with imagination. And when I'm working on something, it's like, because I'm so open to it, it's like a goldfish floats into my head of an idea of a memory of a vision and, and I get it down on paper, but in the relationship, we'd be watching, you know, the bridge or something. And I'd all of a sudden, because it, she's so open on the bridge, Saga, with her autism, and uh, that I would, it would trigger something. And I hit the pause button and I say, you know, I just thought of something that I'm just not willing to um, keep covered up with you. And if it's too scary, I understand. And I wish you the best. Not really. But um, <laughs> my pretend person wishes you the best. And I, and I would just say what it was, something I just felt a lot of kind of sh old historical shame around or 
something I'd done that I hadn't told him about. And I'd tell him, and he'd go, like, sure, he, he, he would tear up, and he'd say, thank you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we just kind of spend a minute with it, and yeah, yeah. It might trigger something he wanted to share, or it might not, and we would know intuitively. We'd kind of grok each other, and mm-hmm. then we'd release the pause button, get on with the bridge. So, And we got it all out of the way in two weeks. I love that. So beautiful. I, I had a, a mushroom trip recently, and sometimes the epiphanies are so basic, but the epiphany was Val and I will watch, we're watching Frasier right now. It's a silly, <laughs> but it's pandemic time, and we just want to watch Niles and Frasier be snobby. <laughs> and on the trip, I, I started to tear up, and I, I just said, it's just an excuse to be together. Mm-hmm. And then I realized everything was just an excuse to be right. together. Mm-hmm. But you're sort of up-leveling that, not to make it better or worse, but what you're doing is really owning, like, yeah, we're watching some Scandinavian detective show, but it's just an excuse to be together. And if we can enrich that being together by saying, hey, I'm ashamed. I can be so greedy. I can be so selfish. I can be so manipulative, whatever it is. And now you're really, you brought it up to 220, as David Nickturn says. You were on 110, but now you're on 220. Mm-hmm. Just so lovely. I, you also made me think the thing that Val is so gracious with, as somebody who can be consumed by his own ideas, the goldfish. Yeah. Something that Val has never judged me for saying, she'll be talking and the goldfish swims in my brain. It's, it's a movie idea. And I'm really thinking about it. I'm juicing on it and I love it. And then I just say to Val, there's no apology. I just go, say that again. Would you start over? Yeah. And she just starts over. She doesn't go, you don't, she doesn't make a story of it. You're the guy who doesn't listen to me. Therefore, you don't care about me. Wait. Can you just love that my brain is not always under my control? Right. Compa- I, I'm also a victim. I forget <laughs> the garlic. My brain, I, I don't have all the, the levers perfectly dialed in on my brain. And these ideas also are our job and our joy. And so she's never once, I, I'm happy to, she knows this, but she's never <laughs> shamed me for just going, it's a shorthand in our relationship. Can you start over? She's been talking for 10 minutes. Can you start over? And she does. Because I do care, but I was somewhere else. I, I bet you can relate. You know, there's a, that's beautiful. And it reminds me of something that just, I just, it's stunning that I can't remember it every day, which is that if I think about it and I pay close enough attention, everybody is doing the best that they can at every moment. Mm. Nobody is on attack. Every time I feel like I have to defend myself, I'm defending myself from someone who at worst is being defensive. And and it's just so weird that everybody deserves gratitude and appreciation at all times Mm. because it's tough. It's complicated. It's weird in this world where we live next door to strangers and don't, and there's a, there's something unnatural about it. And it creates all sorts of bizarre behaviors, but all of them are defensive. None of them mm-hmm. is aggressive. That's right. Wow. Yeah, Eckhart Tolle says you're everyone's only as conscious as they can be. Essentially, I think I'm botching yeah. it. But yeah, you're just as conscious as you can be. If if you could be more, you would be. <laughs> and it's over. Richard Rohr's door. He says, "Don't forget, everyone is carrying an unseen burden," and and that is another. Sorry to keep mentioning psychedelics, but I'm being Duncan Trussell for you. You wanted Duncan Trussell. Here's Duncan (laughs) Trussell. 
almost every time I take psychedelics, you go, I can't believe there's so much going on in here. And everyone is like that. You become aware of your inner world in a way that you're like, I am a million-sided Rubik's Cube. And oh my God, so is everyone. That was another one of my very basic epiphanies this last trip. Is again, I was crying and I said, it is beautiful to care about another person. <laughs> and I just kept repeating that. Again, so basic. But because everybody is carrying a burden. Have you heard about that practice that Ramdas used to sit with people and he said, whatever you're ashamed of, just tell me. And he would just be doing mantra and loving them. And he called it um, stuffing them. He's like, it's just stuff. It's just yeah. stuff. Mm. Yeah, Ramana Maharshi did something similar where he would just say, I'll take on your burdens. Don't worry about it. And he, yeah. and it was really that casual. And people would like try to keep with their burdens. He'd say, no, I'll take it on. Stop. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, we have a really special place in Central Park that we go to to celebrate a moment when we were first dating where I shared just the thing that I was most ashamed of that I did and and was still like actively very embarrassed and ashamed. And Pete just was like, oh, I've done that. Everybody's done that. And, <laughs> and isn't just- it funny, the more like a pirate I had been in my own life just drinking rum and whatever it might have been. The more fuck-ups I had, the easier it was for me to just go like, isn't that great when you tell somebody something and you're like, everyone has HPV. I'm not, that wasn't it, but I'm just saying (laughs) there's a real beauty in going, everyone has HPV (laughs) or whatever. That's a fake example. That wasn't Val's thing. Thank you for clarifying. I'm pretty sure I do have HPV. (laughs) It's such a part of the 12-step recovery that you pick up the 200 pound phone and you blurt, you know, it's the sacrament of blurt. So mm-hmm. I call my best friend all the time. I say, I hate everyone and all of life, especially, especially <laughs> Neil is so on my last nerve. And I wish I were, we were Protestant and could get an annulment. But, um, <laughs> and my best friend never says, well, why would you think that? Why don't you make a gratitude list? She never hands me some happy Christian bumper sticker. She says, oh, I'm so glad, too. I hate everyone. Let's go to Target. Yes. <laughs> and um, or, or, you know, in, in recovery, a lot of times people have run, have run screaming from fundamentalist Christian or 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 Jewish or uh, mostly Christian Jewish families where the God was so harsh and unpleasant and um, and so they don't have a God of their understanding as, as the third step is that we turn our will and our life over to the care of God as we understand God so it could be the Mount could be Mount Tamalpais which was a sacred mountain for the the coastal Miwok who lived here. But people will always say to the newcomers, well, why don't you just borrow my God? You know, she's great. You know, she looks like Bette Midler and, and she overeats. And, um, and that's one thing. And then the other thing is just say it, just tell it. it. We're as sick as our secret. So if you blurt out stuff that is causing you shame and that, you know, the small cringiness then just tell me. And no one in 35 years of recovery has said, oh, my God. No one has recoiled and said, well, why would you think that? Why on earth did you do that to a friend? Why yeah. did you do that to a, to a really close friend, that great betrayal? They said, oh, God, thank you for telling me for one thing. And my details are different, but I did the same thing. Do you have a minute? 
And yeah. then you've got the shame shared is half as much shame, you know? Yeah. And that became holy ground. We were watching your TED Talk, Annie, where the first I was here's me being honest about my kink. I was very proud that I knew the first thing God says to Moses is take off your shoes. Uh, So I felt like a special boy. So thank you for that. Um, I I would love a fantasy of mine is going on Jeopardy, but all the questions are just categories that I know everything about and just schooling it. Uh, That's that's a real joy for me. But when we go to that spot in Central Park, um, we, we, we get in that gelatinous moment every time it comes back to us where Val said this thing where I authentically, and that was grace for me, because I can be as judgmental as the next person. But in that moment, I, I was a vehicle for, for grace. Grace was working through me that I was just like, what? That's nothing. That's nothing. I, I mean, you could intellectually be like, I guess that's something, but you're like, it's beautiful. You're okay. And then our love like was amplified mm-hmm. just like your work. Both of you, your work is amplified. If, if we could end the podcast now, because if there's anything I learned, you're talking about the Christian God. My understanding of the Christian God as I grew up with him was a lifeguard and not only my activities, but my thoughts. I wasn't safe to think, what if you're bullshit? I couldn't think that. But then when I was allowed to think, what if you're bullshit? When I saw that this this loving awareness, this consciousness is so much bigger and timeless and outside of my drama that it could handle anything that I could throw at it, then it became real. That's the paradox. Richard Rohr says we don't come to God by doing it right. We come to God by doing it wrong. And we don't come to great love by hiding our secrets, which is what I did to God. I was like, I'm not selfish because I wanted to go to heaven and I want Val to love me. So I'm going to pretend that I'm not an arrogant ass who for a living gets up on stage and expects people to clap before I've said anything. (laughs) That is a lunatic and you have to own it. You have to go. My ego is so hungry that I can have a great set and get off. And she's seen me and I go, that was terrible. And I say this sometimes when I'm on stage, you should hear how well it's supposed to be going up here. (laughs) You would be embarrassed for me if you thought if you could hear the level of laugh I thought I should get from that line. uh, And it's a craziness that you need to share. Right. You need to let it out. I was going to say that I was raised by atheists and I converted drunk. But um, (laughs) my sense of God, of Jesus is not a life saver a lifeguard it's a life raft mm-hmm. and when i crawl back onto the life raft i am out of breath and i my hair is down in front of my face and i'm frantic you know i mean i usually it's like with i have a spiritual mentor since i call her horrible bonnie since i got sober <laughs> and i do not call unless i'm desperate you know mm-hmm. and i've painted myself into a corner and it's mm. I, it's when all else fails. It's like Less the, the, it's the kid with the broken toy, right? I remember Sam, when he was little, he had this absolute driving devi- um, belief that if he got the Power Rangers Megatron, it would make up for everything. It would make up for having, you know, not having a father around. It would make up for having a writer mother with funny hair. And, and it would make up, he was very upset that we didn't have a hutch like the other families, but um, his obsession, beca- and I said, we don't have China to put, he goes, that's my point. You know, <laughs> about seven. but anyway, 
he said uh, he believed that if he got the Power Rangers Megatron, which we couldn't afford, all would be well and all would be well and all would be well. And I finally got him the Power Rangers Megatron. And by the, it's just it's about 50 cents worth of cheap plastic. And so on the second day, it costs like 50 bucks. On the second day, there something had broken. It wouldn't go together. But Sam at seven or whatever, five was just like me. He was going to. Uh, jam it into working. He was going to force it into being what he wanted it to be. And finally, when he couldn't, when all, you know, when all else fails, follow instructions. And he came to me with the pieces that weren't working. And he said, here, and that's how I am with God. You know, Mm. when all else fails, I come to God. So sometimes through horrible Bonnie and I say, here, Mm. and they, she always says for 35 years, she said, um, I'm so glad you called. And I said, we've always been having the exact same conversation. And she said, I have loved every single time mm. you call because what we talk about is how broken we are. And we talk about surrendering to God and we talk about surrendering and we talk about putting it, putting down our weapons and coming over to the winning side, you know, and the winning on uh, the weapons are, the ego, you know, the weapons are the self-will, the weapons are the judgment and the superiority. And then the, the winning side is the, the being humble again and saying, oh, okay, what? You know, I, I thought, you know, I wrote this book, Help, Thanks, Wow, the three essential prayers, which are those, Help, Thanks, Wow. And I thought the fourth essential prayer is whatever. Yes. <laughs> and whenever when I got sober, the... An old timer said, you know, instead of saying this, saying in the morning, this beautiful prayer of turning it over and thy will be done and all that. He said, the secret is all of us old timers wake up and we say, okay, well, okay, God, whatever. And then at, at nighttime, instead of going to bed and saying our prayer of Thanksgiving and gratitude, we say, oh, well. <laughs> so I love those two prayers, whatever. And oh, well. That is wisdom. I mean, Neil, yeah. this is your tradition. It's it's very Taoist as well, but non-resistance and surrender. I just did. Sorry to always make it about me. I just know me better than anybody. <laughs> I did a podcast recently and it really stunk. Like I just couldn't find it. And I was, and I said on the podcast, I go, this is really humiliating. And I was really pleased to know that I had evolved enough to go like, this is good. This sucks. I can't yeah. find it. I'm yeah. I'm broken. But if it can go away that quickly, one podcast, then it can't be who I really am. Yeah. If it's so fragile, it can't be who I really am. Can I tell the story of your your book galley? Remember? Oh yeah, you'll like. I hope you like this. Yeah, you're generous, Val, to bring it up. So we um, we went to Huntington Gardens, which is a beautiful botanical gardens. It's one of our favorite places here, and um, and we saw a guy with like a jean jacket with. It was like punk rock. Yeah, punk rock, like jean jacket, and on the back it said "fuck it, say la vie." And we just kind of, that became something that we adopted. We, where we kept we were just, going, fuck it, say la vie. We <laughs> just kept it, saying it. And, um, and of maybe a couple weeks later, uh, just the right amount of time to kind of forget that, Pete's ga- book galley went out and it was the wrong, uh, it wasn't the most recent. As writers, you can appreciate it had notes to myself in it. It had chapters that weren't 
going to be in the book. It, it was yeah. just a mess. And I was like, this is what you're selling. I was naive. I was like thinking the New York Times was going to review my book. But I was like, this is what you're sounding to the New York Times. So I was really upset about it. Yeah. And like re- really more upset than I've seen him be. I'm, I've only seen him be this upset a few times. I'm so waspy. That means I got very quiet. Yeah. I just sort of f- fold into myself. That's what I do, Pete. Neil gets mad and he can be a total asshat for about five minutes and he goes off for a while and then he comes back and he's all done whereas I get quiet and then I weaponize my quietness you can talk to Sam about it it is so scary oh yeah (laughs) yeah I learned that from my parents too you you harbor it and then you wait until something else triggers it and you're yelling about this but you're really yelling about your book galley so I know that lesson too well I'm so repressed, I'll just turn it into an ulcer, but go ahead. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So he was completely quiet, and but there was such a like energy coming from him. And I was just sitting there not knowing how to be there for him and just holding space and I'm codependent, so I'm taking <laughs> I'm taking this completely on. And what do I say? I want to say just the right. I was lying on the bed. Yeah, yeah, just the right perfect thing. And we just, it felt like an eternity. I think it was probably just 10 minutes of silence, but so much was happening in that silence. And finally, Pete had his, his like hair in his hands and he just went, ah, oh, fuck it. Say la vie. <laughs> it was a beautiful, and then we laughed. We laughed really hard. A holy hard. laugh. I mean, it was just the laughter of, of God. It was such a And release. it was gone. Yeah. It was ironic to write a book about that had, my one of my mantras is yes, thank you, especially when something is bad. If something's happening and you hate it, if you say yes, thank you, it sort of rewires it spiritually, but also just psychologically. And I was like, here I was unable to use what I wrote in the book about the book until that jean jacket came back. <laughs> Neil, I feel like you've been nodding a lot. What do you got? Oh, wait, can I say the dog is making an appearance? This is so <laughs> life on life's terms. But um, I, I wanted to two quick, two quick things. And I wanted Neil to talk about what on earth he's even talking about with Shapes of Truth. But the first thing is the New York Times never reviews me if it's any this is my 19th book and they never review me and on my first book which was a novel called hard laughter when the paper came back came out paperback came out it spelled my name wrong right wow either say la vie or whatever or life on life's terms but it's like (laughs) buckle up it's it's gonna be um if any but i just you know that you know what they dropped an e in your name on a galley too yeah. more recently yeah, yeah the, to yeah. drop the e and the, the little oh, yeah, tag yeah. on the top of the page that yeah. said Anne Lamott yeah, over yeah. and over and over again and, like the, yeah. <laughs> wow one thing I felt excited about to do the podcast with the four of us was for Neil I hope in a sort of short form <laughs> um to to tell you to tell your listeners what the shapes of truth are not, I thought of the title. So I would like, before we go anywhere, I'd like full credit for the title. You get full credit. Anyway, the shapes of truth are just so far out there that I just wondered if we could take five minutes and, and talk about what, what and how to access them. 
Okay, Absolutely. well, we'll give Neil 10 minutes because you, we seem to worry that uh, Neil goes long. And then I'm going to double that to 20 for my interruptions. So it's going to be oh, at no, 20, no. 22. Trust me. No, you don't want 20. You want 10. Okay. <laughs> okay. I love it. I, I can't wait, please. And selfishly, we're like, my mom is about to visit. And I love my mom, but family can be very difficult. So I'm like, I want some stuff that we can use. Annie, you talk about like, oh, maybe the next thing will be the thing that unlocks everything. We sort of have a little bit of that attitude as we're about to go into, uh, you know, if you think you're enlightened, hang out with your family. So yeah. please. Right. Yeah. <laughs> my, that my favorite Ram Dass statement. Yeah. Isn't it beautiful? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Again, because it's humiliating. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, of course, Annie calls visiting my family. What do you, what do you call it? My family's, I'm from a family of know-it-alls. She has this in the book. And so everybody in my family is a know-it-all. And so when she, there's an annual beach week in Delaware that we've done forever. Um, We used to actually, the family had a house there for years. And Annie got introduced to it, what, four years ago, five, Mm -hmm. five years, five summers ago. And, and uh, she calls it Wikipedia on PMS. (laughs) (laughs) but know-it-alls do talk a long time about things that nobody else is interested in so i'll try to keep it to all time to less less time the book the book the book quite simply is uh, a statement that there are 35 peculiar little colorful objects inside your body that uh you can find uh, it's a not that hard. It's a little tricky, but anybody and everybody can find them. Everybody I've tried it on can find them. And each one of them represents uh, a particular aspect of God. And that aspect of God relates to a very typical human psychological issue. And so it's as if we have inside us the cure for our troubles if we pay enough attention. So in that way, it's uh, it's like learning in college that Plato said, you know everything important inside you already, and you just have to recollect it. And this is kind of an embodied form of that. Mm-hmm. Um, there, uh, the each has its own color. So if your issue is you feel like you're dumb or you're weak, um, those two happen to go together those two issues happen to be actually the same issue, then if you focus on it and enter into your body, you're going to discover a red thing somewhere near your heart. Um, It's often a sphere. And the red, the red, the color indicates universally what it is Uh, universally in the sense that uh, everybody sees red when they're seeing red they're they're, that red is the same red. And it means um, strength or, or in terms of discernment, strength and discernment are kind of the same word, um, or same meaning. And the more, the interesting part of it it, to a linguist or to a philosopher is this bizarre idea that we have a built-in vocabulary of value, right? Mm -hmm. And that's very hard to believe, right? But the interesting thing about the work is, that's quite secondary to the fact that over time, if you do this a lot, 
a lot of my clients and myself came to the understanding that I'm not a collection of issues. I'm mm. actually an, an embodied collection of, at least mentally and psychologically, an embodied collection of uh, these strange objects of value and the, the actual God-like um, essence sitting underneath them. Mm. So I come to believe that I'm more this simple person with 35, uh, knowing 35 uh, object, uh, 35 mm, nouns or words of value that are me. So I'm gratitude and I'm strength and I'm, I don't know gratitude. I don't know strength. I come to believe that I am gratitude. I am strength. I am will. I am surrender. I am death space. I mean, that's some of the, and it's a very, very trippy kind of thing to come to believe that in my simplicity, I actually have these glorious notions of um, a generous God. Wow. And, and Lamont. Do you ever let people have very short readings on your pod, on this podcast of yours? Little sidebars? Oh, yeah. We yeah, let's have a sidebar. I can read you two paragraphs and really give you an example of how it works. And this is our second date, too. Is that okay? I think I'm, the first date. Yes. The first date is when you made me cry. That was the pearl. No, that was when you said you thought I was so childlike that it would remind me, remind you of your mother and upset you so that I shouldn't be the way I am. This, <laughs> oh, this is on the first date, too. Yeah. yeah. That before after you asked if I was frigid. Um, that was the second date. The frigid. No, I think the frigid, frigid and childlike like my mother were both at the same. In, I think they were the same sentence. Oh, okay. I think there's two things that I'm worried about. Yeah. That you're a little childlike like my crazy ass mother was. Right. And, <laughs> that, and that judging from the one thing that I had read that she wrote about, maybe you're frigid. Yeah. Because you had written, well, I won't go into no, the I had detail. written on a piece on um, the, my year doing match.com. I'd said that all all men should know that women wish they would be done a little tiny bit faster. <laughs> it's a universal truth. So and I took so that to mean, to mean frigidity. Yeah, yes, so, he's frigid. But that was the second date. Okay, so this is the first date. So I'd showed up. Um, we got down to talking about the books we were each writing. His was called Shapes of Truth. Oh, I said prettily, what is it about? Let me show you, he offered, and began to walk me through the process that he <laughs> describes in the book. He told me to think about my difficulty that morning with somebody who was helping me with my grandson, who came every morning late. Um, I closed my eyes to begin the interior visualization. He asked if I felt anything distinctive in my torso, and if so, where was it? I described a cramped feeling in my lower belly anxiety I had over this had had to fire her Neil asked me to describe the exact size of the area of tension the shape of the area its density and its color it was an ugly stain a spilled liquid grayish brown the density of mercury he asked me to stay with it for a minute I desperately wanted to run but I sat quietly partly because he really has a great nose and I had 
fixated on how much I liked his nose. And his big and, hands. And he has beautiful hands. Yeah. yeah. So anyway, so I, I sat quietly, partly because of his cute nose, but also because my stomach felt terrible and maybe the shapes of truth thing would help. Then I noticed the strangest thing, that the gray-brown liquid was floating in an empty space as if some of my internal organs had been pushed aside and had left behind a pristine staging area. After a while, he asked if the thing in my belly was changing in any way. Well, not fast enough, I can tell you that. But in fact, it had changed slightly and continued to, becoming wider and less dense, less like mercury. Then after some time, it rose higher, eventually reaching my chest, much airier now, and then slowly, slowly rose up my throat and into the air beside me where it disappeared. In its place, I noticed a white balloon. An icky, thick, grayish-brown blob had transformed through attention into a white balloon hovering beside me and then magically inside me, too. Ah, said Neil, smiling because he's a total know-it-all. You went straight to the pearl. The pearl, I asked. Yes, he said, the pearl. The white balloon is kind of like looking straight at your own soul or at least a part of it as if you can see both your own divinity and your ability to function in the world from your divinity. Neil's little parlor trick took me from my familiar self as an anxious, cranky adult full of self-doubt and blame to my own patch of the sacred in about 10 minutes. Mm. So that's what the process is. There's an asterisk on that page that says your results may vary. Isn't that right? (laughs) Yes, exactly. (laughs) I, I love that. It, it, Val helps me with this all the time when we're having a feeling. Is it a? It might be a Kabir poem. We invite it into tea. That sounds very much like what you're doing. Yeah. Your resistance is what's charging it and giving it. And then you start, like Eckhart Tolle says, we start identifying with our pain body and it possesses us. Mm-hmm. I'm not just doing this for you, Andy. I like talking about Jesus. I sometimes think a lot of the possessions in, in the New Testament may be very exaggerated psychological things because they feel like possessions. When that story that Val was saying, I was possessed by my feeling of dread yeah. and I wasn't there. Pete wasn't there anymore. Only the feeling was there. And then if I'm hearing you right, Neil, you're saying by giving awareness, giving space, giving it the attention like a petulant child, welcoming it in and giving it the ability to do what it will and transform. Is, is that right? It, that's exactly right. So most of the time, if I'm like, if I've got a terrible boss who belittles me and is a martinet, then I'll, I'll grumble to myself, I have a terrible boss, right? And I feel crummy about it. And I immediately want to feel less crummy. And so very quickly, I'll either want to avoid it or deny it or fix it in some way, right? And it's always avoid, deny, or fix, avoid, deny, or fix. And so I'll actually only spend 20 seconds at a time thinking about the fact, right, that he's, he's, a, he's a martinet and he belittles me and makes me feel small. And I'll, and I'll think about it 20 seconds at a time for 100 days in a row. That, you know, walking out of his office going, that jerk, right? And then what do I do now? I'll have a drink or I'll do something to make myself feel better. What you do when you're doing what you're talking about, inviting good, it, my, my 
my feeling of feeling belittled by my boss inside for tea is I'm going to let the bad feelings stick around long enough for it to explain itself to me. And if I don't avoid it or deny it or try to fix it, it'll actually tell me a little more and then a little more and then a little more about itself. In fact, by doing it in an embodied way, I've added something else, which is it'll actually form into like this gray liquid or whatever. And there's a big difference between a gray liquid and the words, my jerk boss. The words, my jerk boss, are just, now I've got to do something about it. A gray liquid is just a gray liquid. It might have a little bit of a dull, crummy feeling, but it just looks like a a benign thing inside me. It looks very kind of uh, easy to sit with. I don't have to do anything about it. In fact, it's actually weirdly got its own vocabulary that it's teaching me about the issue. And mm-hmm. my what I say to myself about it is eventually the gray liquid, it, it leaves the body in one of five ways. It either drops down, goes out magically through the perineum, or it comes up, but Annie's came up through the throat and goes out, or it dissipates into its surroundings or a couple of other ways. Oh, it can go up. It can form a hole in your head. It can go up and out your head. There are these five ways that it'll disappear. And I always think of it as it's disappearing, it's waving and saying, thanks. You actually sat around and listened to me. You actually, right. you actually saw all of my, I'm a suffering thing and I'm in you. And you gave me all enough attention that I got to tell you everything about myself. And now I can go and free you to see who you really are without me. As above, so below, right? Why would the laws of human interaction be different from the laws of intrapersonal interaction inside? Mm -hmm. So these laws, and you see it in the the cosmos, like vacuums being filled, attention in certain ways being paid. Now we're getting pretty hippie. But it, it stands to reason, again, Annie, for you, Jesus is always saying, look at the birds, look at the trees. And when you're in that space, you go... Do you ever have that where you go, holy shit, don't get me wrong. Sometimes I'm like, nothing makes sense. Everything's a mess. And then sometimes I go, wow, look at the trees. Look at their roots. Look at their interconnectivity. Look at the yes that they give every element of life. And I go, oh, it's the same with me. It's the same with me. I don't have to worry. But there's a lot of silence and a lot of patience and a lot of openness. Mama, what did you have? Oh, that, I mean, Pete pointed to me because he could tell how much this is just lighting me up. It's just everything I'm interested in. And in a way that I've never heard before. I mean, this is such a brand new uh, concept, I think, probably to anybody who reads this. So I definitely want to hear how you came to this. But um, what it made me think of is my wonderful, perfect therapist from the pedestal that I put her on is often telling me that um, my, my I think it's so true for most of us, at least in America, that at some point in our childhood, we abandoned our bo- our, our bodies where things were not safe and things were big and scary and our minds took over. And so often the relate the mind body relationship is that the body has a feeling, the mind kidnaps it, makes a story around it and keeps that story going. Like you were saying about the boss kind of as a way to keep 
control and keep you out of the experience. And keep an identity. I am the person who hates his boss. I am the person who's afraid of COVID. Uh, yeah, as long as I have a problem, I have an identity. Yeah. And um, and that I'm just, uh, so much of my work in therapy has been trying to get my body to um, sit in like a chaise lounge and say, uh, sorry, get my mind to sit in a chaise lounge and say, let's just see what body has to say about this. And we can trust you don't have to carry this all on your own. And, um, and what I've experienced is exactly what you're saying is when I can just break it down to the sensation, it's not even necessarily unpleasant. Like if I have anxiety and I'm just noticing that it's actually just a, a activation in my chest or my stomach, what's the problem? That's just energy, you know? You say that all, it helps, I have anxiety, I'll have a bout of anxiety and Val will do what it sounds like your book is about. She's just like, what are you talking about? <laughs> like, go in and look at it. Because I, somebody, uh, one of our listeners helped us figure out, Val is a bottom-up person. She goes from the body up to the brain and I'm a top-down person. I go from the brain She's into the exactly body. exactly the same with us. Isn't that yeah. funny? Yeah, yeah. And one of us is... Jesus. Yeah. Um, there's this great out. Al- so I'm so happy for you because <laughs> it's working for us. Alan Watts has this great line where he goes, um, so many of us think of uh, who we are as our brain and the rest just dangles. He's like, we're our brain with our eyes and the rest just dangles. And I always think, and the rest just dangles. It's just such a perfect way of how we think of it. I was just going to say, Neil, can you speak to that kind of body-mind connection? And then also um, tell us how you came about finding this. I want to know how you came about the title. Just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Who thought of the title? Annie is waving. <laughs> and dancing. She's dancing. <laughs> the, the dog is about to bark because the mailman has appeared. But we're, but she's she's very old and she may not wake up for it. She may not wake up. Okay, oh. Go ahead. The... the um, You know, one thing that I think about along these lines is that uh, that that mind or 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 weird sense of uh, truth teller in the body um, really doesn't know how to make up stories. It's really accurate, whereas my mind can make up stories and it can be contaminated and it can be corrupted and all sorts of things. My body always kind of tells me the truth. And when I, I think that's because my body is really in the in the in the job of objective maintenance that that I'm made of 37 trillion cells that are constantly monitoring themselves to look for uh, uh, error. And when they find error, they send out for troops and the troops come in and fix that cell. And so I'm constantly kind of maintaining myself in a very objective, straightforward, mechanical way. And I think that's how my body thinks. It's very, it's very straightforward and mechanical and in maintenance mode. My mind is playful. And so it can invent stuff and imagine stuff and draw from memory and draw and make up stuff and do all sorts of things. And it can be, it can do that for good or it can do that for torture and it can torture me. Mm -hmm. But the cycle seems to be that I take stuff in through my head, uh, just random variables to be interested in to make a puzzle. 
and that's how I play and moment by moment in my life. And I bring it down into my body. My body's got a dynamo in it that kind of is this truthful dynamo that just looks around for valences, just like it does with itself. It looks around for, are things fitting together right? And then if it finds that things are fitting together right with these random variables, it goes, aha, I've solved the puzzle. And it brings it up to my heart. And then it says, go relate that into the world. And it sprays. So I have these three centers that, and it makes a complete cycle. It goes from head, body, heart, head, body, heart. And that's all I'm doing. I'm just kind of every moment, I'm kind of every strategy, every thought, every, every I'm just kind of making up these kind of interesting little puzzles and meaning. I learned this, a lot of this stuff. I didn't learn that stuff. I learned the stuff about these 35 embodied concepts from a, 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 a wise former physicist uh, living in Berkeley, a guy named Hamid Ali, who, who writes about them as A.H. Almas. And he's got a mystery school. And so there are 5,000 people around the world who kind of know about this and who study it and go through his mystery school um, and have retreats. And I was in that and uh, I called it the cult. It has no cult apparatus. You can leave (laughs) at will. You're encouraged to doubt everything and all that. The only precedent that he or I can find for it well, there are two presidents, but the, the, the one clear president is he borrows five of them from the Sufi. The Sufi knew about five or six or seven of them. And the Sufi, they're, they're, they call them the uh, Latayef, and they're very, they're essential to the, uh, uh, a student with a Sufi master learning about their how their soul participates in the world. It kind of, they become, those five or six are kind of a a nice little guided um, uh, process through studying what's wrong with your personality and what might be a way to solve what's wrong with your personality. So sort of elementary psychology for, for Sufi. Sufi are the, the tiny element of um, the, uh, Muslim world who are mystics, just as Christianity has a tiny world of mystics and Judaism as Kabbalah, a tiny world of mystics, right? We get kind of drowned out by the lawgivers in, in all cases, but who to me, and I think to Annie, are by far the most interesting of the people who are yes. studying and interpreting these wise wise, well, they happen to be men, these wise people, Jesus and Buddha. Yeah. Uh, or Jesus and who, I don't know, Abraham and Moses and <laughs> whoever are the interpreters of God. Um, so the um, there's very little precedent for these. And the other thing that Hamid Ali did uh, was by looking at them and taking them seriously, he discovered a bunch more of them. And so he expanded it out to this catalog. So the catalog and the idea behind it is just, it's in a sense, I stole it all from his mystery school, but I did it with his approval and he assisted me in doing it, knowing that it was going to bring it out beyond the mystery school. So mm. they, these 35, um, divine objects that you can find inside you 
are used in a very um, uh, uh, deterministic way. Step by step, you move through them in the mystery school, and they're they're in assistance. They they're used in assistance with some other tools that he uses to basically bring you up to some kind of state of enlightenment after about seven years. It's a very efficient path to uh, self-realization or enlightenment that he offers. And these are part of it. For me, when I bring it out in the book, they're not tied to any specific path of enlightenment. They're just kind of curiosities that might be of interest to people who want to have another mechanical method uh, like any other mechanical method that works to resolve psychological issues. Mm-hmm. If at the end of that, most of them happen to become a little more spiritual than they were, and that's true of my clients, they all end up kind of more spiritual walking out than they did walking in with me. Well, that's great. Mm. Yeah. Wow. That's really groovy. I love that so much. When you come up here, you need to do it with them because I've seen people's minds who are not spiritual literally be blown. I saw a very reluctant woman go from very, very shut down to finding a being a kidney being shaped in her chest Mm. that she finally realized was fetal. It was not, in fact, a kidney bean. It was her curled up baby self who was so, so scared to come out because it was going to be a scary marriage. And so Neil said, you know, kind of coaxing it, does it want to move? No, no, no. But so all of a sudden she got in touch with her, her, her baby on the other side, the baby of herself, the very precious scared self who she will never forget as long as she lives. Are these people safe? Are these new people safe? Is this circumstance safe? No. Therefore I'm not going to expose my infant to that. Mm. So um, I've just seen people's minds who are like kind of poo-pooing. Oh yeah. There's, there's a green vine in my throat, whatever. But the green vine might be the jealousy that has kept them, um, an old, old jealousy that's kept them from ever being able to fully love another person because of their shame of it and the toxicity that the jealousy releases into our system, right? So maybe you start to deal with the jealousy. You see it, you welcome it. And as Neil just said, you listen to it. What does it want to teach you? And then maybe it shifts and transforms and arises. And then maybe now you're a little bit more free to be loved. Mm. Yeah. Oh, I love that. Free to be loved. That's that's really it, right? In yeah. the end, that's it. Well, that's the experience that people have. Sorry to keep bringing up psychedelics, but it reminds me of trips that non-spiritual people can take psilocybin in a clinical setting. Yeah. This is in the Immortality Key, uh, Ryan's book, which I loved. He talks about an atheist that took it and she said... I was bathed in God's love. And they're like, why do you say God? And they're like, I, I don't know. Like, there's, there's just the way I say it. It's so interesting. Kidney bean, right? We talk about the mystery, capital M. We talk about the mystery with metaphor. As Richard Rohr says, some time, always true. Right? But that's how we can access it is through symbol and metaphor and image and story. But isn't this brilliant? You're blowing my mind that it talks to us in metaphor too. And that's my experience on psychedelics. Again, it shows me things in a way that I can understand. We always say on the show, it's like trying to explain the internet to a dog. If I was going to explain the internet to a dog, 
I would get some bones out and I'd connect the bones or whatever I would do. I don't know what I would do, but I would meet it where it was at. And then the other profound experience that people have on mystical journeys, whether they're psychedelic or otherwise, is they, they feel worthy of love. They feel accepted for who they are. And that is conversion. That is real conversion. Uh, Jesus is always talking about the yeast in the bread. It's the unseen, this is Richard Rohr, the unseen psychology inside of us that makes the whole thing rise. And he says that the Pharisees have bad yeast, but then he also talks about good yeast, this invisible thing that activates the whole thing. Mm-hmm. And and this sounds like a method to get in touch with our with our yeast. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm going to have to go now because I'm very hungry. And Jack, my grandson's mother and grandmother and his three brothers are coming over. Oh my goodness! I must yeah. be a saint. But do you want to? Is there one more question you really wish that you had asked either of us? I have to ask the final question. Thank you. I didn't realize it had been 90 minutes. It has. Mm-hmm. Um, we always ask, because we like to talk about all the woo-woo and go far out, let's get back into our bodies. Let's get back into carbonated holiness, which is what you, Annie, say. It, that's what laughter is, is carbonated holiness. <laughs> Can you tell me of a time together or a part where you laughed really, really hard? Maybe you were a child. I'll give you a couple prompts. Maybe somebody fell Maybe somebody farted. Uh, there's no there's no answer that's too silly. But if you're laughing and you're crying and your belly hurts, where are you? What happened? You know, we really, the two of us together laugh so hard, so often, often about at other people. <laughs> right now, we are currently laughing our full heads off at Matt Gates. Yeah. And we are sorry for the women, the young women, the very young women on whom he prayed. And we are, both of us are there for any of them that can want to come find us. But every day there is something so <laughs> hilarious happening to Matt Gates that makes both of us so happy. <laughs> and we laugh and we laugh and we laugh. <laughs> At the preposterousness, at the, at the absurdity. Um, you know, living with Annie, I I tell people it's like living in a in a in sketch comedy. I mean, she we, we for some reason we we have developed, and I, I'm sure you two have too. You you're you're the types we've just developed. Like like um, you know, fuck it, uh, say la vie, right? We've developed just a, a couple of dozen riffs. That just kind of uh, either dog us all day long if you're if you you know because they they can be very inane and you can suddenly notice that you're living in a completely inane world. I mean, it's a funny inane world, but it's yeah. still inane. Yeah. Or or they can just kind of keep everything light and yeah. and keeping everything light is much deeper than people think. Right. People think that deep means profound and, and unhappy, I, yeah. And or or more meaningful in yeah, some yeah. way. And you know, that's this is one of the great lessons of that Buddhist middle way is watch out for that. That that it might be that the surfaces are exactly where you want to be. And that the oh. lightness of being you maybe you don't want to be in a void, maybe you don't want to be in essence. 
Maybe you want to be right at the surface. And that's where it's funny. humor does yeah. that. Humor brings me right to the surface. You know? yeah. Love that. And in yeah. the Christian tradition, and I will end with this, it's that you take care of the soul or the spirit through the body, through the surface. You put, you're upset about what your thighs look like because you forgot to start going to the gym after you had the baby 31 years ago. And, you, know, you know, figure it out is not a great slogan. So what you do is you rub a delicious smelling lotion into your thighs and you thank them for having carried you for 60, 66 of your 67 years here. And you, or it's a laying on of hands, and which is why I have sparkly pink nail polish on right now, because mm-hmm. it's a laying on of hands for somebody to bathe your hands in lukewarm water and massage them with oils and then paint them a beautiful color. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I think it's the same way that, that to be able to laugh, I mean, sometimes I'll laugh, I'll start laughing in front of Neil and I'll end up crying because they're two sides of the same coin and they're both equally just the truth. They're the shape of truth is the laughter and the joy shared. Mm. I love Perfect. that. Perfect. Well, I want you to eat. I will go eat. <laughs> would you please say you keep are, it crispy? We love you both, and we want we, you to come up here and spend We will. Yes, please. Sorry Absolutely. to burden. We have the guests say a catchphrase. It's just what we do every episode. If you guys would say keep it crispy, either in tandem or one at a time, it's just the sign off. It's how we know it's over. Keep it crispy. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much. Bye, guys. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you, love you. you. Bye-bye. Bye.